1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Colina Limarenko, Doctoral Candidate in Neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland. Today, we'll be talking to Johan Alvehus about his new book, The Logic of Professionalism, Work and Management in Professional Service Organizations. This book discusses common management and work practices in professional service organizations. Alvejos opens important discussions on what it means to work, manage, and be managed in such professional organizations, casting light on classic conflicts. It will be essential reading for students and scholars of management and leadership. Well, Yuan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: So, as we are living through the times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience.
0: Wow! Yeah, it's first of all, we must all recognize, of course, that this has been a trauma on a global scale, um, and I and I think that it has. It is. It, Sort of evolved differently, um, depending on where, where you live, of course depending on the countermeasures that various countries have been implementing. And in Sweden the countermeasures have been less strict than in many other countries. So I would say in my everyday life, in terms of you know going to a cafe or going shopping for food, etc, all these things have um, they haven't really affected me that much. Um, However, of course, universities have been closed down. We have moved our teaching onto Teams and Zoom and such platforms. Uh, Conferences have been canceled. I haven't been looking my, well, until basically until November, haven't been looking my co-workers in their three-dimensional eyes for over a year. So it has, of course, affected me in that sense. Um, and I, I, I must say, particularly, I think the teaching is what has had the most negative impact, if you like. Um, mm. Not not seeing students, not interacting with them in, in the usual way. Uh, Zoom works, but it's not the same thing as a face-to-face seminar uh, with the kind of discussions that you can get going. So that, that has been the main negative impact. On the flip side of it, uh, I got this book written. That is one thing. Um, I have a 40, 50-minute commute to work, and just dropping that commuting, of course, frees up time for uh, other things.
1: And with respect to international travel, are you missing conferences, for example, in in person?
0: Brutally, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I sincerely miss uh, going to conferences. I uh, long to see my international friends, uh, catching up, having a cup of coffee, just chatting. I have some colleagues that um, w- we've. We've uh, kept up contact through telephone and uh, other media, uh, but it's not the same thing. And, and also these, the random interactions that you stumble into, new people with interesting ideas and thoughts, all that, of course, evaporates when you don't meet face-to-face and uh, the general mix-up of people that happens.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So hopefully we could move on to m- mingling again more safely.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we all look forward to that.
1: So could you tell us a, a little bit more about yourself?
0: Well, what is there to say? Born in the early 70s, uh, raised in Sweden, um, growing up in a the Swedish welfare society, which is, you know, a very secure and um, comfortable part of the world and a comfortable part of history, basically, to grow up in. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I've been very favoured, I think, by destiny, if you like. Um, and uh, I've, I think I've, if you go, if you would look back on my life, I would say it's. Pretty much about school and academia. That's mm-hmm. that's what I've been focused on to a large extent. Um, yeah. And I'm, how do you I get
1: interested
0: I, I, in the management? I, I'm, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't sound like a very interesting person, and possibly I am not an interesting person. Um, but I do hope that I write interesting things.
1: So how did you get interested in the management? Wow, yeah.
0: I was sort of leaving the basic education in Sweden having absolutely no idea what I was going to do. I had zilch Uh, idea about the future. Uh, So... I figured, oh, I didn't know one thing. My father's an engineer and I didn't want to become an engineer. So I figured, okay, what kind of education can I get that can make facilitate as much as possible? And um, I decided on business administration because I had some inclination towards marketing and advertising. So I thought that might be a good idea. And um, so I started uh, reading business administration at the university. And... Um, once I did that, I found it extremely boring. Uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm the kind of person who pushes through. So I decided, okay, I'm going to finish this. And so I did. And actually, in my fourth year, I took my... Or was it the third year? It doesn't matter. I took my first course in organization theory. And then something said, click, within me. Wow, that was interesting. And then I... Studied some social psychology, which I found extremely fascinating. And uh, after I'd written my master's thesis, I was offered a PhD position and uh, I took it. So it's sort of, you know, the banana peel strategy uh, when it comes to life and education. I basically slipped on a banana peel and ended up at at the particular university I did and... um, with a particular uh, kind of courses I read, and um, I just followed along, I guess.
1: I love the way you are speaking so frankly about your academic uh, journey and really shows that we have to be open-minded, but also there's uh, we don't know everything, Joey, especially when we're young students on what to choose.
0: No, I think uh, I think that the whole idea about being very rational and having a thought out idea of what you're going to do at a very early age, I actually think it's quite limiting um, because you have you have so little idea of what is out there. I had no idea what research was about until I started my master's thesis. And I if someone had asked me a year earlier about research, I would say would have said, First, some foul word and then no. Um, but eventually, this, is, this turned out to be, in my view, the best job you could ever have. And so there's, so there's an element of allowing things to happen to you, I think. But of course, you have to combine that, I would guess, with some sort of willingness to grasp opportunities and try things out.
1: And what about your environment? Were there any mentors that really uh, helped you along the way?
0: Well, yeah, that, that comes down to another, an, another one of these slippery banana peel stories, actually, because I started my PhD at university uh, and I did a halfway intermediate station, so to speak, in a PhD, a licentiate thesis. And by that time, I, I had sort of started to understand how academia worked. And I realized that I'd sort of made a bad choice when it came to my institutional environment and my supervisor. So um, when I went to a conference in uh, Lund, uh, mm-hmm. I I met this professor um, who ha- I, I ha- I'd written, qu- sorry, I'd read quite a lot of what he'd written. I was rather impressed by it. He approach theorizing in a way that i could really connect with and when i was going from i was leaving the conference going to the catch going to t- catch the train and i just realized oh i forgot my bag so i turned back to the conference uh, got my bag and then went towards the t- train station again and at that moment i saw this professor coming down the street a pavé street. So, you know, he's an old bicycle sounds, and bells ringing, basically. So he's coming down that street, speeding on his bicycle. And I almost in shock shouted, "Mats!" And he, what? Turned around and almost crashed into a car. Oh, and we started no. talking because I'd, I had met him earlier at, at a PhD course. So I, we were on first name basis. And, Well, after almost crashing, uh, we started talking and, you know, we talked for 15, 10, 15 minutes. And during those 10, 15 minutes, we decided that I should switch my PhD studies to his department and he would become my supervisor. So if I hadn't forgotten that bag, I don't know where I would have ended up.
1: That's a great story. (laughs) I'm glad that he didn't crash. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sometimes
0: I, I well, I I can I can forget things a lot, but that at that particular occasion, I guess it served me quite well.
1: So your latest book is the logic of professionalism, work and management in professional service organizations, and could you describe what is it about and how did you come to writing it?
0: Yes, well, um, we all. <clears throat> When, when we supervise PhD students, for instance, we, we all encourage them to make this elevator pitch, uh, to, you know, taking the elevator two stories, uh, being able to tell about your someone about your project in that time. So my elevator pitch then for this book is that this is a book about how professionalism is maintained. Because on the one hand... Professional work is understood as something that is independent. It's based on abstract expertise. It depends on deep client knowledge. And professionals value autonomy and are skeptical towards authorities. But on the other hand, we find lots of, I would say, complaints today about the over-management of professional work. Sometimes we even talk about deprofessionalization. And many of us working in professional organizations can testify to this, that management is omnipresent. So on the one hand, we have professionalism as a value being sort of the perfect anti-management storm. And on the other hand, we have stories of deprofessionalization. And in my view, these both of these views are correct at the same time. And this book is about how these images both can be true at the same time. And I try in the book to explain why they can coexist. That was a rather long elevator ride, wasn't
1: it? We're at the fifth story now. No, 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 it's great. <laughs> so, How did you get inspired to write a whole book about it? Yeah, I guess at some point...
0: Points uh, in when you work as an academic, we 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 do write a lot of papers, a lot of academic articles that get published in scientific journals, and hopefully get read by a few other academics, but not very much by anyone else. And I sort of ended up in a situation where I felt I'd written a. Not a huge amount, but a fair amount of texts around professionals and professionalism. And I thought it was about it was time to try to sum things up. To try to see whether all all these things that I'd written whether they were whether they sort of whether it was interconnected, if it could be brought together in some sort of coherent whole. And I and I think the book actually started from that thought, the thought of, okay, is there any method to my madness? And whether well, it was or nice not, I, I will leave that for someone else to judge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, let's delve into some of the topics you cover in your book, and we'll see whether it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. <laughs> we'll
0: leave it to the audience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so how would you define what is professionalism? Yeah, that's, that's the
0: sort of million-dollar question, isn't it?
1: Mm.
0: Um, I would say that if we take the word professional in sort of everyday speak, that, that term in itself can mean a lot of things. So we can say that somebody is really good at something, um, so she's a real pro, So that's one way of understanding what professionalism is. It's about being particularly good at something. It could also be that you get paid to do something. So she's a professional football player as opposed to someone who just plays football because it's fun. Sometimes we mean someone who has certain certification. Uh, So she's a medical doctor, hence she's a professional. And, Traditionally, you could say that in the sociology of professions, there's a lot of debate of what constitutes a profession. So criteria such as there's a highly autonomous workforce, uh, they apply e- abstract expert knowledge to client problems, high degree of individual autonomy, and authority more oriented towards expertise than towards formal Uh, hierarchical positions, uh, and possibly then uh, recognized formally through some sort of certification. But the problem here is if you take all these criteria, there are not many professions left, and we are left with a lot of borderline cases. So take, for instance, teachers. Yes, abstract knowledge in terms of pedagogy uh, applied to clients, pupils, students. Uh, Client-oriented, absolutely. Uh, Seeing expertise as a key form of authority rather than formal position often. But do they control their own knowledge base, which is another common criteria? Well, when it comes to teaching, politicians usually have something to say about the teaching curriculum, so the teachers don't own their knowledge base. Or we can take the example of medical doctors, a classic example of a profession, but they often work in huge bureaucratic organizations, hospitals, where there are, of course... If it's a public health system, you have politicians caring about budgets, for instance. Uh, If it's a privatized system, you will have shareholders caring about budgets and profits, and so on and so forth. So the problem with the idea of identifying professions as particular groups or specific occupations, I think, is that you end up with all these borderline cases, and then saying that this particular occupation, Occupation A, they are a profession. If you say that as a researcher, you actually become part of their struggle to become a legitimate profession, to become or to be recognized as a profession. So I prefer, and you uh, use the word professionalism, not professionals. And I prefer the word professionalism. So I see professionalism as, as an, what, is social, what social scientists call an ideal type. It's an abstract theoretical model. And we will probably never find any instance of pure professionalism. But we can use this abstract idea about professionalism as a sort of a point of comparison and the, at the heart of professionalism to me, and I'm drawing on um, a guy called Elliot Freidson here, the core of professionalism is about the control over the work process. Because Freidson compares professionalism to market and bureaucracy. So the logic of the market is about the consumer so if we go into a restaurant, we can, as consumers for ourselves, decide whether we like the food or not and whether we want to pay for the food. Well, we'll have to pay for the food after we've had it, but we can decide which restaurant to go to, whether we want to go to a street food place or a high fine dining or whatever. So the customer here is king, basically. In the logic of bureaucracy, the manager decides and the manager sets the standards for quality. They decide what's good work or not. They decide on the work processes. And this is something we want too, in some instances, because, say, the juridical system, the legal system, we don't want that to be a market. We want politicians to be able to decide the laws. So that would be one case of where the logic of bureaucracy is quite nice. And the third logic, as Freidson talks about, that's the logic of professionalism, and that is where the worker controls the work process. And that is useful in some instances where the outcome is very ambiguous. When it's difficult for the client to decide whether it was a good service that was delivered or whether it was not. So say you go to the doctor and you get some sort of diagnosis. It's very difficult for you to say whether that was correct or incorrect unless you're a medical doctor yourself. (laughs) And it's very difficult for someone else to tell that doctor exactly how to go about setting the diagnosis and finding a remedy of sorts for the condition that they might find. So that is a case where we would probably want the workers to have a large degree of control over the process. So that, to me, is the idea of professionalism. But we can understand then immediately that, okay, In modern society, the situation where the worker by herself is entirely in control is very rare, if at all existing. So here comes the idea with an ideal type. To which extent, in a certain particular empirical instance, do we find the logic of professionalism being very present, being very salient? in comparison to other logics, such as market or bureaucracy.
1: This is really interesting. And I was wondering that, um, so as we understand professions, is mostly like discrete entities, like you gave example of medical profession, uh, profession like doctors. But I wonder yeah. if this concept of professionalism can, ap- can apply to some of the um, Human activities that may have a bit of a fuzzy edges around them, which don't really fit into a specific, um, mm. discrete entity of profession as we understand it. Absolutely,
0: and I think that is that is sort of the point with approaching it from this more, uh, more ideal point. Uh, 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 the point of approaching it from this ideal-type point of view, because then we can start to ask questions. Take the case of teachers again. Why is it that teachers do not live up to this particular criteria about controlling their own knowledge base? How come teachers do not, in within their community are allowed to set the curriculum for students, for instance. And some teachers have more uh, control over this than others. So at university, uh, a university teacher has quite a lot of degree of control over the curriculum. Whereas, at least in Sweden, if you're working as a teacher in high school, your influence of the curriculum is certainly more limited than if you're working at the university. So it enables us to ask questions. And I think that is a key way of relating to concepts in social science in general, actually. It's not there to provide clear-cut distinctions or straightforward cause-effect relationships concepts in the social sciences are more directed towards helping us identifying interesting phenomena in the world around us and ask more informed questions about these phenomena.
1: So how understanding of these concepts evolved over time, especially as the new professions keep popping up and uh, different uh, human activities?
0: Yeah, this is this is a key issue, I think, in professionalism, professionalism research. Um, it's often argued that we have seen over the last couple of years a process of deprofessionalization, meaning that the professions, whatever they are then, have become more and more dependent on mm-hmm. uh, or subject to uh, managerial control, less autonomous than before. And this is often related to the advent of new public management in the 1990s, where the expanding public sector was seen as a problem. The professions were understood as being too independent and ideas from the private sector were brought in, ideas about competition, uh, market solutions in the public sector, etc. And from that, it is said that, uh, that deprofessionalization has emerged. The thing is, however, we find this idea about deprofessionalization a lot earlier. It seems actually that professions have for at least 50, 60 years been undergoing a process of deprofessionalization. And it seems to me that if they had been so brutally deprofessionalized over such a long time, would they even be professions or professional organizations today? So my question in relation to that would be, wow, how come professionalism, why is it so resilient? Because it Mm. seems to resist all these attempts at deprofessionalization. So there is an interesting discussion, I think, around the role of professionals um, or expertise, if you like, in more general in, in society, that to some extent, we can say that, yes, uh, the discussion around this implies change over time. But if you look back a bit, the discussion seems to, I wouldn't say repeat itself, but there
1: are certainly recurring themes so, who decides what is a profession? Can I invent a profession, for example?
0: Well, if you.
1: <laughs> In a sense, you
0: can. <laughs> I'm not sure everyone would agree with you, though, because, of course, a profession, that's a label. It's a label that we attach to an occupational group. And, of course, if you just decide okay i'm going to uh, i'm going to use this label in this particular way basically making your own definition of course you can say that now this is a profession and that is not a profession and i think that is that's the problem with saying that professionalism or professionals are a certain specific type of social group that has certain characteristics uh, that that only means that what we consider a profession or not a profession, that's subject to our definitions. And I think that is the point of using professionalism as an ideal type. There, there's no argument. There will never be a pure logic of professionalism existing in it, in, in and for itself. There, it, there will all, Every case will be a borderline case, or every case will have at least several logics uh, present. So the question rather is which logics and how do they interact? And that it makes it more difficult to make far reaching generalizations. Uh, but I think that that difficulty is good that it, ex- that it exists because these kinds of far reaching generalizations. I would say they don't work very well when it comes to understanding organizations.
1: So do you think that the drop-down menus that we get on the online forms sort of limit our understanding of what profession is? And can we move towards having more of a field application rather than specific discrete professions?
0: Yeah, I would certainly encourage anyone Thinking or speaking in terms of professionalism have a more, as you refer to as, a feel oriented approach. A good term, by the way. Uh, but I'm, I have absolutely no illusion regarding the drop-down menus. They will persist.
1: <laughs> so how this type of work gets managed from institutional or individual point of view?
0: Yeah, and that... This is, this is a key issue, of course, especially the distinction you draw in here from an institutional or individual point of view. I strongly argue in this book for a view of management and managing that takes everyday work into account because management happens on the work floor. And management is also work. It is the work of organizing other people's work. So in order to understand how management works, we really need to look at everyday situations. Because if we view management as some sort of system that exists independently of the practices that the system intervenes in, then we get a very strange view. This is the view underlying the notion of implementation, for instance. So the idea about implementation is that you have a system, let's say a new workflow system, and we implement that into the organization. And anyone who's been working in an organization will realize that that is not the way things work, because those supposedly working under this new system, they will of course have to adapt it to their own way of doing work, to their own practices. They will have to interpret it. And so it gets tweaked. It's get, it gets um, adapted things happen when systems are put into practice so in order to understand how management works i think we need to understand it from this everyday point everyday work point of view and that becomes particularly salient i think in organizations that have a strong influence of the logic of professionalism because here we find situations where individual autonomy is very strong and it's very difficult To say to someone, you have to do like this. So take, for instance, um, accountants that are working very close with clients. It's very difficult to tell an accountant you should do exactly this with your clients because the accountant will say, but this particular client of mine won't accept that. That's not the way we work together, I and this client. And... Suddenly, the whole idea about managing that relationship from the outside, so to speak, it sort of falls flat.
1: I think you really hit the nail on the head here, and I'm sort of thinking about even academia when you try and manage the knowledge uh, uh, produced as a professionalism well, from pro- professionalism point of view. It's so difficult. It is. It is. And we, we have
0: this um, metaphor that we sometimes hear. It's like trying to lead or manage academics. It's like herding cats. <laughs> and um, it, it's, of course, an evocative metaphor. And anyone interested in how it works, Google, uh, look for it on YouTube, because there was an episode of Mythbusters, where they actually tried to herd cats. And they failed spectacularly, but on the other hand, as a colleague of mine, Stanley Dietz uh, once told me we were we were sitting uh, chatting over a beer, and I mentioned this herding cat thing, and he, he he sort of in his very American way, sort of leaned back a bit and said, "Well, you won, you know." I grew up at a farm. Herding cats is easy. They follow whoever brings the milk. (laughs) Got milk, got cats. And he has a point because even academics who are supposedly so autonomous and independent, if you say, well, I've got research funding regarding this particular project, you will find these academics being very, very, suddenly very interested in that particular topic.
1: So what are different approaches uh, that we can take to managing professional work? And what are your favorite examples? Well, there are
0: so many ways because work can be, work can of course be managed in various ways. You can look at uh, the work processes, trying to structure people's work processes. Quality assurance systems uh, are are one example of that. You can try to control work by uh, controlling the output, measuring the output that people produce, uh, which is in itself a rather interesting case. Um, I actually studied, uh, as an example, when it comes to managing output i looked at um, billable hour systems and uh, how billable hours get reported and this was at, uh, at one of the one of the big four accounting firms and the idea with that management system there is that okay if you work one hour hour for one client you will bill that client for that hour and so so the logic of the system is basically that it's a clockwork operating in the background. Now, that was, of course, not the case. For one thing, it created a constant awareness of what you were doing. So I literally observed these accountants, or tax law, it was the tax uh, tax law uh, lawyer department. I literally saw them sitting by their computers with Excel sheets up with six-minute intervals, so you get 10 by the hour, recording what they were doing every sixth minute. So a constant awareness about time and time pressure, but also an evaluation, a constant evaluation of their work, in particular the juniors. They had to think, okay, can I build this? I, did, I, I, I took a wrong turn when trying to solve this problem. Should I build that to a client? No, that was probably my spare time, because of course there was no... Uh, no account to bill for making mistakes. And if mm-hmm. there were such an account, I'm not sure you would want to fill that account too much. So suddenly that was on their spare time. It, wasn't, it just was time that wasn't recorded anywhere. But even more importantly, when someone got a job from a client, they had to decide how to do this job. So in order to... For Every job that goes out to a client has to be checked by someone more senior, uh, or at least a peer. So if I get a job from a client, and I look at that job, and I think, okay, so I cannot build the client for more than six hours for this. Hmm, it'll take me eight hours to do the job. I can't do that. What do I do then? Well, then you turn to someone junior, And say to them, you have to do, can you do this for me? You get four hours, not more. And then you get it back. You spend one hour or two hours looking at the junior's job and then send it back to the client, billing six hours. But the junior had to do this in four hours. And you realized yourself you couldn't do it in eight hours and probably took the junior 12 hours. Mm. And the junior could, of course, say no. But if the junior employee here says no, will I turn to that person again? No, I won't. I will turn to the other person who does it in four hours. So this became a rather brutal system of exploitation, basically. And from the junior point of view, they saw it as a way of investing in their own future. They were basically buying derivatives with their time. And some of them eventually will become partners. Some of them will not become partners. And their investment will be, at least if if... If not completely lost, at least they will lose quite a bit of it, so to speak. So this, I think this illustrates, again, if we look at the system of billable hours from a systemic point of view, it looks like clockwork. It looks like as if it should work. But when it hits everyday work practices it's not that clear-cut system anymore. It becomes something that is a part of the uh, struggle for autonomy, struggle for control, and struggle for performing in the workplace. So it became a game-playing system, rather. And this is why it's so important to not get stuck in descriptions of systems or... Two overarching uh, descriptions of how does this organization work? How does this control system work? We really need to get down to these gritty everyday details in order to understand what it actually is that is going on.
1: So is hierarchy really an integral part of these systems, or can it be disposed of?
0: I think hierarchy uh, is certainly an integral part of these systems for good or for bad because if we look at how, how does how does professionalism on an individual level develop how do you learn how to become a professional well one thing is for sure you don't learn it at university at university you may get the initial knowledge needed to progress or Towards professionalism, towards uh, working in a professional organization. But the point with professional organizations often is expert knowledge applied to client work, to client problems, and applied being the key here. At university, we don't have client problems most of the time. Some vocational training does, and that brings us into more of a, again, more of a borderline case. Most cases borderline anyway, so that's not a huge problem. But the whole, the whole idea about professional development is that you need to learn these things. And you do that most of the time through more experienced professionals. So you engage in what's called legitimate peripheral participation. Basically, you start with easier tasks and then eventually you move into the more difficult ones increasingly building your professional knowledge base, expanding it, deepening it. And there, there is automatically a hierarchical relation between more experienced and less experienced, or if you like, uh, the classic divide between a master and apprentice. And that division is useful. That hierarchy is very useful because it creates a... When it works, it creates a really good learning environment. Of course, on the other hand, as always, it's something that can be exploited, as in my example with the billable hour systems. Strong uh, elements of exploitation there. So as so many things, these are
1: double-edged swords. There's a good side and a bad side to it. And what are your thoughts on some of the more experimental approaches to management of uh, professional work? For example, having distributed hierarchy or a pay grade system of the equal pay from janitor to CEO, for example?
0: Yeah, I think experiments in equal pay and... um... Uh, pay ladders for instance for professionals where you don't have individualized salaries uh, but you follow a formal formal increase by seniority i think these these are really interesting experiences uh, experiments i don't know mo- enough about them to have a distinct opinion of how they work because again i would i have not seen studies taking them to the to the shop floor, so to speak. Um, There are today organizations talking about being leaderless organizations, um, non-hierarchical in the sense that there is no boss, etc. And I, I, I would generally, that kind of rhetoric to me sends... I see a red warning flag Mm. a lot of the time because if you again start looking at them in more detail, I think you will find that there are hierarchies, there are power relationships because formal hierarchy is but one part of hierarchy. Organizations are social systems and social systems always have elements of hierarchy to them. And as much as people like to abhor bureaucracy and say bureaucracy is all bad, there's a point to bureaucracy in the sense that bureaucracy is a system based on rules and regulations. And now I am not talking about bureaucracy in the sense of an administrative mess. When we complain about bureaucracy in general, we tend to think about bureaucracy as uh, administrative hassle, Uh, But bureaucracy in, again, ideal type form is a system where an organization is based on a set of rules, agreed upon rules. Agreed upon rules are rules that can be negotiated. They are rules that are explicit, that we can talk about. And therefore, bureaucracy has to it elements of transparency and negotiation, which make them... more open to questioning. If we imagine that social system, if we take away the bureaucratic aspect, we are left with interpersonal politics. We are left with a situation where personal relations will matter a lot more. And I'm not entirely sure that that's only
1: a gain. Yeah, that's for sure a key point. So what else should be addressed and improved in this field?
0: To improve in this field of managing professional service organizations? Well, that is the second million dollar question, I guess. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I would want to say... Uh, or I'm very sure that I would not want to say how to manage professional service organizations. Uh, I think that we need to find more clever ways of discussing and approaching the way organizations are managed. And I think that largely will have to rely upon dialogue in each and every local instance. And some would call this an increased corporate democracy, and I would not disagree with that label. But I think that suggesting generic solutions, it's not a very productive way forward. I think that trying to enrich our vocabulary, the way we think and talk, And interact around the organization of work, trying to refine that and be more aware of what's going on. I think that is a first step. And the second step is to apply that in dialogue between uh, managers, non-managers, managers Um, managers and other stakeholders, non-managers and other stakeholders, and so on and so forth. I guess it's a really tricky issue because it's so easy to sit and have an idea about, yes, we should do like this and we should do like that. But suggesting ideas in that way basically throws us back into naive generic solutions. So I think that what is needed is encouragement to work with local solutions based on dialogue, which is in itself a generic solution. So yes, I am speaking in paradox here.
1: So thinking about uh, the big picture, what are the implications of asking these questions for the wider society?
0: Well, if we take a broader societal view, I guess the overarching issue becomes this idea about deprofessionalization. Is it so that professionalism today is under threat? And if so, how much of a problem is it? Because deprofessionalization, of course, it sounds bad, and I would certainly agree that it doesn't sound like something I would be subject to. But we must also remember, I think, that if we go back a few years and look at new public management, the situation where new public management emerged was a situation where the public sector was growing out of proportion in many countries. So that there is a need to have some sort of control mechanism in relation to professions. Because... Again, discussions can become very polarized. We find on the one hand the profession romantics who think that everything professional is good, anything that tries to impose itself or uh, assert some sort of control of a professionalism is bad. But I think they forget that, for one thing, the situation in the late 70s, early 80s uh, with the growing public sector and... Uh, and a and public sector that was becoming too large, perhaps. Um, we must remember that. Well, we must also remember that professionalism itself doesn't automatically produce good things. We have lots of scandals. We have scandals in accounting, in law, in medicine, in research... So professionals are most certainly not best left entirely to their own devices. So that's one thing. The other side of it is, of course, the profession skeptics who think that professions, it's all about seclusion, it's all about elite identities being produced, trying to create facades about what's really going on, gaining monopoly situations, etc., etc., So that's the other extreme. And that's not very productive either, I think, because I think there is a point to professionalism. There is a point to the ambiguity involved in professional work, trying to develop competence to deal with very, very difficult issues. So I think that if we want to approach professionalism in a more reflexive way, we have to stay away from these extremes. And we have perhaps have to think a bit about what kind of accountability can we direct towards professions? Because if we try to have two um, superficial criteria of performance, that will perhaps only lead to the kind of gaming I described in terms of billable hours. And it will most certainly lead to what I call opaque transparency. Professions will be very good at showing something around their work that seems transparent, but it's really not transparent because you only see the facade. So we need to avoid that, we need to retain what I call functional ambiguity. There is a role for ambiguity in these firms. That ambiguity is important. We need to retain that. So when we want to... Address how do we deal with professionalism in society? Again, I think, working with models that are more oriented towards dialogue and understanding, and allowing, to some extent, professionalism the logic of professionalism, to do its job, so to speak, because that is a control system in itself. It's not that professions are systems that lack control there are a lot of internal control mechanisms that hopefully um, help us to keep rogue professionals in check, so to speak.
1: So what discoveries along your journey to writing the logic of professionalism surprised you the most?
0: That's a tricky question. Surprised me. I think what surprised me was the way I relate started to relating to these theories myself actually um because i can feel myself if i look back in the way i've been thinking around professionalism i can i can see myself hovering between these two extremes that i just mentioned the profession romantic so on on the one hand profession skepticism on the other hand and to me i wouldn't say that i'm trying to resolve this conflict in any way. But I think for my own part at least, I find I have I have found a way of reconciling this tension, of understanding in more detail how the mechanisms underlying this tension, how they work. So the key ideas that I come up with in the book that I just mentioned, functional ambiguity and opaque transparency, they are derivatives of writing the book, actually. They are ideas that emerged in writing. So, so perhaps in a sense, uh, the proper answer to your question is, I was surprised that I was actually surprised. I thought I knew, or I thought I knew what I knew better than I did. And I was happy to discover something new in what I'd already done.
1: So can you call a digital academic nomad a profession? And would you ever consider becoming one?
0: Well, I have no idea what a digital academic nomad is, but it sounds extremely cool. So I would certainly want to be one. (laughs)
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, it's when you work remotely, for example, sitting on a beach, writing papers and books.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, well, I guess in that sense, I have already, as most colleagues too, have already become digital academic nomads during the last year or so uh, by force. And as I said, initially, I, to many in many respects, I've been longing to get back to normal so badly. But when you put it in that way, lying on the beach and writing papers, if we can just remove the writing papers bit, it sounds like a perfect <laughs> life.
1: Well, hopefully in the, in the near future, we'll see the digital academic nomads in a drop-down menus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that should be easy to implement. Someone listening, please do it. <laughs>
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
0: Yes, well, I'm currently actually sort of between projects, but by the new year. So perhaps when this is aired recently. But with the start of 2022, I am embarking on a project where we will look at what we call administrative neoprofessions. So we will be looking at um, organizational developers and uh, systems specialists within the area of healthcare and how they interact and affect everyday work processes in healthcare. So we will actually take a professionalism perspective on what is traditionally classified as bureaucracy. So trying to understand bureaucracy from a professionalism point of view, which is a sort of a way of twisting, hopefully, uh, our thinking around these issues. So that's what I'm going to be embarking on um, and hopefully be spending the next three years on.
1: And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Yes.
0: Um, My name, as I said, is Johan Alvehus. And um, it's fairly unique. So you can actually Google me and uh, thereby you will be able to find my website at Lund University. The book, The Logic of Professionalism, you can buy it from um, Bristol University Press, their website. But also, and I would recommend going to bookstore.org, uh, w- where you will actually support your local bookstore if you buy the book. And I am a, s- a real paper enthusiast when it comes to books. So any way you can find to support your local bookstore or your local or library, I feel that. I would strongly recommend that.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this thought-provoking discussion. Thank you very much for inviting
0: me.